Uh, good morning, everyone. So we're going to talk about uh, progress this morning, whatever you mean by progress. And the question for you is, what do we mean by progress in today's world? So has it changed, or do we need to change it? And so, so that's the question for you. What do we mean by progress? Has it changed, or do we need to change it? And what I'd love to see from this morning is some real tangible outcomes. So, not just lots of nice discussions, but something which we could actually move forward with in some useful way. Um, so, I'm joined by two uh, eminent uh, friends uh, this morning. Um, so, Whitney Johnson and Amy Edmondson. Um, would you like to introduce yourselves? Absolutely. Um, my name is Whitney Johnson, as Peter just said, and I am. I was based in Boston until recently, but just moved to Lexington, Virginia, which is a very small town in southwestern Virginia, in case you've <laughs> ever heard of it. Um, my background is on Wall Street. I was an equity analyst for nearly 10 years, covering uh, stocks in Latin America. And I was an institutional investor-ranked analyst. More recently, I co-founded an investment firm with Clayton Christensen, and I recently wrote a book titled Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work. Okay. Amy Edmondson. I've been at the Harvard Business School on the faculty for coming up on 20 years. Uh, my field is uh, leadership and teamwork and organizational behavior. I wrote a book a few years ago called Teaming, How Organizations Learn and Innovate in the Knowledge Economy. Another one slightly later called Teaming to Innovate. And I have one coming out in April called Building the Future, Big Teaming for Audacious Innovation. I study and consult on how people team across disciplines of all kinds, boundaries of all kinds. And I'm really looking forward to bringing that topic of cross-boundary teaming into this important discussion. Great. And we have a team of 45 people here in the room this morning. Uh, so everybody's going to participate, if that's okay with you. Is that okay with you? Excellent. And Helen here has a microphone. Um, and so what we're going to start off with... Um, Whitney and Amy are going to give us their views in a, in, a, in a minute or two, but what I'd like you to do, first of all, is give me your five or ten words on what does progress mean for you. You have ten seconds to think about it, and then Helen's going to come with the microphone. Ah. What does progress mean to you? Okay, let's go. So we have to do this fast. Just put the microphone straight in front of his face. If it's healthy, there's progress. Healthy. I like that. If it's deeper. Deeper. Mm. Um, I think for me, just uh, being able to do things much more easily. Easy. Mm. Pushing boundaries, personal and professional. Creating meaning. If it's thoughtful. Uh, disrupting the way it's been done before. Hmm. Learning. People spend endless amount of time at work. Let's make it more meaningful. Okay. Hmm. Uh, getting uncomfortable. Learning and happiness. Sorry, I didn't catch that one. What was that one? Happiness. Happiness. Excellent. Uh, things are getting better for everyone. Mm. Uh, knowledge and experience plus. Great, fantastic. What a great start. So um, I think it was George Bernard Shaw says, you cannot make progress without feeling deeply uncomfortable. So 
<laughs> the idea about kind of having to create some pain in order to create some progress is quite an interesting one. Okay, ladies, who would like to go first? I'm happy to. Okay. All right, so what we thought we would do is just give you an idea of our respective worldviews so that we have this context or container for talking about progress this morning. And I think we can probably all agree that the pace of technological change is quickening. And the question then we ask ourselves is, as we think about this, do we consider ourselves just a victim or a spectator as part of this technological change, or do we in fact believe ourselves as the ones who are agentic in moving this change forward? And my basic premise is that we often talk about companies disrupting, but I believe that, in fact, people disrupt. And so as I think about the world, I think I, I like to think about the S-curve that we typically use to gauge how quickly an innovation will be adopted and then reimagine it to help us understand the psychology of disruption. So, for example, at the low end of the curve, we know that progress is going to be typically quite slow. And then um, that helps us understand and avoid discouragement because you're going to be working very, very hard but have very little momentum. And then as you accelerate, you're going to accelerate as you put in the time and the effort, and that allows you to feel more competent and therefore confident. And then at the top of the curve, you're going to be doing a lot of work, but it, way, it won't be you won't be seeing many results at that point. And so at this point, your growth starts to taper off. It's very easy for you to do. Boredom can kick in, and your plateau can become a precipice. So you've got the low end, this accelerating growth where you feel confident and confident, and then growth tapers off. So what I've done with this S-curve is, is said to myself, okay, how do we speed our progress along the curve? And there are seven basic variables that allow you to do that. Number one is to take the right risks. Number two is to play to your distinctive strengths. Number three is to embrace constraints. Number four is to battle entitlement. And then there's three more. Well, I'll say them really quickly. Step back to grow, put failure in its place, and then be discovery-driven. And so the thing that I really want to think about this morning is the fact that I don't want to have to have my code put my thumb every time I want to look at my phone. Um, okay, so is that... Uh, is as we think about this worldview, and I'm completely mumbling because I'm totally jet lagged, is how do we speed our progress along the curve? And as we think about progress, it's progress toward what? And so that's really what I want to focus on today is we can be along these curves, but what do those curves, um, what do those curves mean to, for us and what kind of success are we looking for? So... That was completely jumbled, but I'll toss Not it over to Amy. Not at all. Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> all right. What time in the morning is it for you? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, I have no Now it's 5.30. Yeah, now it's 5.30. Yeah, good. We're it. good. You're getting up now. You're getting yeah, up. Go exactly. for a run. Yeah, no I'll problem. Be half an hour. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay, so the question, as I understood it in advance, was do we need to redefine progress and consider new measures? And the answer to me is a resounding yes. We absolutely do. Why? Well, in part, I think the way we have conceptualized and have measured progress has gotten us into some trouble. And so I want to suggest two big changes and then uh, a few smaller issues. So the two big changes is to rethink progress from something linear and largely siloed to something systemic and highly integrated. 
Maybe I should do those one at a time, but nonetheless, I think they, they belong so tightly together, I, I, I feel the need. So, and when I say linear, in any field that you can think of, whether that be stem cell biology or organizational behavior or economics or, you know, economics in a specific sense in terms of GDP, et cetera, there are reasonably obvious measures of progress. You know, we've, we've made that new discovery. What is less well understood is how a, uh, an increment of progress in one field actually can detract from progress in another or create problems in another. So, for example, if in medicine we are able to keep everybody alive for far longer than, than uh, ever before, that's a wonderful aim and a wonderful thing, we now have to think through the biological capacity, ecosystem capacity of the planet uh, in, in new ways. So we need more people who can think as comprehensivists as opposed to specialists. We have a lot of specialists. Specialism is the aspiration of, of the very bright, uh, and it may not be a good thing overall. So similarly, related to this sort of more, more systemic feedbacky view of progress, um, in which, which, of course, under, underneath this whole category is the, um, actually maybe even a better example than the one I gave before, is the climate crisis. Um, in where, so we can think about the things that belong in this category of progress under the climate crisis, right? Oil recovery improves, carbon in the air improves, I mean, uh, in increases and, and doesn't improve. So these kinds of unintended perverse effects are a direct result, I would argue, of how we conceptualize progress. Um, inequality extremes, of course, and that's a later panel, but that would be another outcome. So the second big bucket is economic progress always seems to dominate the conversation versus social progress. Michael Porter, my colleague at Harvard Business School, has recently uh, come out with uh, something called the Social Prosperity Index, and I think it's a terrific example of an alternative measure of progress, and it includes so many of the things that came from the group. It includes things about, about health, about access to knowledge, education, um, happiness, even meaningful uh, work, and so in that sense, it, it, it um, asks us to think more deeply. It asks us to think um, about pushing boundaries uh, to get where we want. And by the way, the United States, which has long considered itself at the pinnacle of all things progress, uh, in fact, comes out very poorly on many of the measures in, mm -hmm. the, in the SPI. Uh, so that's, a, I think, an important example of rethinking uh, progress. I think under this category, it's important for us to recognize, and we don't often enough, that economics is a man-made science. It is not physics. We treat it as if it were physics. It's an accounting system that we humans came up with not so very long ago and then took um, more seriously than nature herself. Um, so let's see, the last, uh, the last and very small category, I think, but possibly quite meaningful as well, is from unfettered consumerism to considerations of the larger issues around happiness and the pursuit of meaningful uh, endeavors, including work. And in a, in a, is it progress? We have to ask ourselves, you know, when an ever-increasing part of the economy, especially in developed nations, is simply finance. Mm -hmm. right? it's, it's, uh, it's, my answer would be no, but I think it's one of the things we have to talk about. Um, and so to make true progress, we're going to need to step back, think bigger, broader, more interdisciplinary than ever before, 
to, to think big, to team up across uh, disciplines of all kinds, and, and to organize to re-envision what's possible for human society. Fantastic. So let me just build on what you both said, because yeah. there's, there's something interesting here which I want to get to, because I started life as a nuclear physicist, I was, I was, yes. I was, I was, which is a very bizarre place. But and I asked you, how, is, how have you progressed from there? What, what, <laughs> yeah. what is your Where's the life? progress? Yeah, exactly. And I explained to you that the yes, progress sir. for me was, was, when I was in the physics lab, progress was about moving science forwards. It was about, and I was studying... In the silo. I was, I, yeah, I, I was disc, uh, exploring superconductivity, and it was about making the temperature higher at which things would float, where things would uh, change their properties. Okay. Okay? Don't need to know that. But progress for me, personally, came when I started to apply that to the world of business, and when you start to make connections. Make, make connections. Make connections in different ways. The first book I ever wrote was about Einstein and Picasso. Oh. And so how you connect... You know, a world of science and a world of art together, how you connect left brain and right brain together. Yeah. So, you know, to it build is, on what you were saying yeah. about, you know, making the connections is when yeah. you, you, you progress, uh, you move forward. Exactly. But, but I'm also intrigued that we have here an equity analyst, mm -hmm. and you were talking a lot about uh, this manufactured world of economics. Right. So there seems to be a kind of an interesting connection. Yeah. I was taught that a responsibility of a business or a CEO in a business mm -hmm. is to is to is to maximise the value to their shareholders. A legal responsibility is what I was told. And uh, all the things which you do on the journey to that, such as happiness and creating a kind of a more sustainable business model and all those things, the ultimate outcome is about uh, maximising the value to your shareholders. And the next question is why? Mm. So do we think that is valid, and do yep. we think it's still valid if it was valid? I think no and no. Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> and, and, and actually, what, gosh, I wish I could remember where I read this, but recently I read a very thoughtful article that said, you know, we've actually exaggerated that claim okay. in, the, in recent decades. We have argued that this is, in fact, legally preeminent, and... And it's not. In fact, the role of the corporation in society was early and long envisioned as, as, as uh, equally caring about the community. Yeah. Right? And in, in, in terms of one uh, providing employment, providing goods and services, um, so customers, mm -hmm. so employees, customers, mm -hmm. um, and shareholders. They all play a role. And the shareholders, in many ways, shareholder value and profit are a reasonably, at times, but thwartable, me good measuring stick. Mm -hmm. They're a measuring stick. They're not a thing. Okay. It's so it's not right. the output, but it's a useful it's, measure it may of be. health. It's, except the problem is okay. when it becomes considered the only thing, okay. it leads to all sorts of distortions, as, as we well know. What would you say with me? Um, I, I do think that creating shareholders' value, I think, I think it's a valid metric. Um, I, I think the a. question... <laughs> A valid metric, yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, I think, you know, if you think about um, we're trying to create value for human beings. We're trying to create value for society. And value is anything that improves people's lives. Again, so that's forward progress. Um, I think what you started to say, Amy, and is important, is that we we value what we measure. Mm -hmm. And then the question becomes, and I think this is where you're trying to take us, is how do we get to the point where we measure what we value. 
Right. And are there some things? Are there some ways to say, okay, exactly. we also value mm. not just um, creating money or you know your ROE or ROI, et cetera, but also are there things that we value around, for example, people? You know, mm. are we valuing human talent, human capital? Because it tends to right now be dollar capital. We don't value human capital. And at, at this point, when you look at the metrics, mm. people almost always just value. Um, uh, physical assets, and there's so much value that's being created by human beings that we do not measure. Mm -hmm. And so do we have a way to, or, you know, at what point are we going to put in place metrics that value the things that we all ostensibly really value? But just to the point is this is a panel about progress. That's a panel about power. It's packed. We still have our metrics focused on that aspect. You bet. Has the destination changed? So, you know, we talked about progress as a journey towards somewhere, towards mm -hmm, a destination. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. progress is a journey towards mm -hmm, a destination. Mm -hmm. From what you're saying, has the destination changed, or have these things which you're talking about always been important? The destination must change. Mm -hmm. The destination must change, or we're really in trouble. So, how has it changed? And it, well, I'm not sure it has changed, but it must change. It must change. So it, it must change. Changed. It must change yeah. to a more holistic set of measures that assess what we value, as Whitney beautifully put it. So what do we value? Well, we value, look in this room, we value, we value happiness, we value health. Health was number one. I think it's a, an incredibly important point. And health is of the individuals, of which we're seeing marked declines in many, even you know, advanced societies like the United States. And uh, we we, we, we value, we, we, uh, we must, to value health, we must, you know, Bobby Kennedy in a famous speech in the, in the late 60s said GDP measures everything except that which is worthwhile. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, a, it's, you know, it's a provocative comment, comment back then. Now it seems nearly self-evident, um, and yet we still are addicted to it. I read recently that if you value it, you know, sort of... Uh, using pricing that would capture energy rates and so on. If we value the ecosystem services that the planet provides to us, it's in the trillions if we were to have an accounting system. Uh, and yet, since we do not, we undervalue it, okay. downplay it. We don't charge for carbon. We don't... Uh, so the destination yeah. has changed towards more, more holistic happiness, yep. more human... More human, more human, human uh, recognizing what humans need to thrive in... Universe and that, planet. and that goes for business too. That should be more represented in the output of what a business does. It should be. It should okay. be. I mean, that, that's be. that's yeah. the whole point. Is that we still most of our metrics are accounting metrics. If you look at a uh, at a you know at a balance sheet, it's mm -hmm. not we're we're measuring physical assets and we're not measuring intangible assets. Right. And so, yeah. again, if we started measuring intangible assets, then we would start to value them differently than we mm -hmm. currently do. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I actually want to sort of go take this a little bit further because I think one of the ahas I had at, you know, two in the morning was that um, I think that as you look at all the advertisements that are out there, there's this idea of, you know, disruption. It's going to, you know, it's going to overrun you if you don't do something about it. And I was thinking about this idea of we have the sense that we're moving backwards, but I think mm. that, in fact, in all the important ways, we're actually moving forward. 
and we have to choose whether we're seeing forward or not. So let me just give you a couple of examples. Um, you know, on the one hand, we'll say to people, well, we're more connected than we ever were, but we're also less connected. But I know lots and lots of families that are actually more connected because they can text each other all day long, every day, because of technology. Um, my son, he's in Brazil on a mission. He's really far away, but he's closer than ever before, I think, in the very important ways. Or online research about families. My 16-year-old daughter, 15-year-old daughter, told me yesterday that we're related to Henry I and Henry II. We wouldn't have known that without technology, which <laughs> I don't know yeah. if it's a good thing yeah. or a bad thing. I was trying to figure out if they were good kings or not, and I couldn't. So, so do you feel at home in this room? I do. Okay. It's my parental, you know, <laughs> anyway, just kidding. Um, so, you know, another idea is that we've got more job movement than ever before. Millennials are going to have 14 jobs before they're 40, so lots of dislocations. But when you think about that, you realize that whenever there's those dislocations, you have this friction, and that friction allows people to innovate and to have breakthrough ideas. So is it bad that we have more dislocations, or is it good? Because that creates more progress. So, and then one, just one other thought. Um, on the one hand, we say there's more bad in the world, but Newton's third law says for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And I would say there's also more good. I look at someone like Malala. I mean, I'm sure we're all familiar with her. A few years ago, she wouldn't have been around, and yet we know the story. She's 12 years old. She starts blogging for the BBC. The Taliban wants to shut her up, so they shoot her in the head. But what happens because of this experience? She creates this right to education petition, two million people, and she wins the Nobel Prize. And there are girls all over the world that are now getting an education because of this. So on the one hand, I think we tend to have this idea of, oh, the world is getting worse. And yes, in some ways it's getting worse, but in other ways it's getting better. So I think I'm going to sort of take this idea and say in all the important ways, we're actually moving forward and moving backward. So there's a real duality there, and I think it's important mm -hmm. to hold that duality together. How it's, a, it's a net yeah. gain, or is it a two steps forward, one step back? I think it's a net gain. Okay. I really do. <laughs> I want to know how many of those 14 jobs have paychecks. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that's why our children are becoming more entrepreneurial, right? Yeah. They're going to have to create their own paychecks yeah, in many cases. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I was with a, a doctoral student from Aise over the weekend at a conference, and he said that 50% uh, of, of, of Spain's youth, I think it's under 25, are unemployed. Mm -hmm. And not, not by choice. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a, there's a lot of disruption. Yep, and it will have to find new patterns. And I think the disruption tells us something. Right? It's telling us that there's a need for new patterns. Exactly what they're going to look like, I think, is all very much up in the air. So, audience, um, <laughs> what, what are your views? So you've, you've heard some thoughts from, from either side. Um, has the destination changed? And has progress changed? So has, has it changed, particularly in terms of where we're trying to get to as businesses? Um, and has the, has the notion of progress therefore changed also? What do you think? Martin. Thanks, Peter. Well, I'm curious because, you know, we work with brands around the world and we work very closely with organizations. And we've seen over the last 10 years that the flexibility is disappearing, the courage is gone, People are spending more time washing their hands, doing politics, than actually progress, right? And I fundamentally believe that one of the reasons why is because of shareholders and because of fear 
for this unknown factor. And I actually think it's self-destructive because when we work with private companies, it's almost reverse. Mm -hmm. The nimbleness, the flexibility, the courage, all that stuff is, is in much higher gear. So I'm very curious to hear your reflections of that and where it will end because it's not very positive right now, I have to say. Okay. Do you have a few? I think it's an interesting... When, when you say private, private large or private small or both? It's interesting. I, I guess we've yeah. seen a shift towards private ownership, and as the as the Eastern world becomes mm -hmm. more dominant, then then private investors dominate mm -hmm. the world now. That is true. Mm. That is true. So, yeah, I, and and I think even we have to f figure out what flexibility really means. There's a lot of uh, talk about flexibility, some of which is is achieved on the backs of the workforce. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the retail industry is um, asking its workforce to be ever more flexible, which means you don't know when your shift is, and you may be called from the middle of a soccer game to you know, a child's soccer game to show up at work now, or you're going to lose this job. Uh, so, flexibility is a good, and it often has uh, an edge to it uh, from the point of view of of the workforce. The, what your, your, your question and comment inherently describes the public markets as a, as a straitjacket. And, and I think that's true, although it may be that the way executives currently think about the public market is the straitjacket. Okay, who else has got a view? We've got quite a few people from different countries here, so it would be interesting to hear different cultural perspectives. Good morning. I'm Sally Osberg from the Skoll Foundation, and Amy, thank you for the reference to um, the Social Progress Index. I'm, I'm actually on the board and one of the founders of that. But my question is for all of you. You're talking about value, and your basic assumption is that we need to measure what we value, um, and yet are we, not, are we not participating then in a system that wants to monetize, wants to ascribe numerical, mathematical value to everything when some intangibles just don't comport with that system. So it's a kind of a, almost an existential question about how we go about this. Probably some of you saw Melinda Gates's piece in the FT this morning about valuing women's work in the multiple trillions of dollars, but that's a kind of prime example. Is that going to solve the problem? So I guess the old world, world said that you've got to measure it to manage it. Measure yeah, it I mean, I, so you've just hit on one of my, my favorite axes, actually. So I, I think one of the things I've studied a lot of is union psychology and, and this idea of in order to become a complete person, we have to develop feminine and masculine characteristics and that we have a society that really does just idealize masculine values of power and achieving, and we put very little stock in in the feminine traits of relatedness and love and nurturing. And I think what I would say is, and again, you know, power, progress. We've got sort of masculine, feminine in, in this very hall. Um, that being said, our minds do tend to like lists. We need to be able to be able to um, bucket things and um, put them into a box just to hold them. And so one of the things I think is important is that as we're looking to value some of these feminine characteristics more, that we are willing to put some metrics on them. But I think that that's still okay. So for example, I'll give you 
Um, one of the ways that you can figure out what you do value is to look at some of your favorite quotes. So one of my favorite quotes is, the ultimate result of all ambition is to be happy at home. Do you love that quote? Yep. And so for me, I say, all right, well, if that's true, if I really do value that, it's hard for me just to say, well, I value being happy at home, but maybe I can say, I'm going to spend time every day with my daughter for a half an hour talking to her. Um, and so I give myself some very specific, specific concrete action to value or to measure what's important to me, but I'm still allowing myself to value both the feminine and masculine because I do think it's also important to understand that we need the quantitative and we need the qualitative. There's a wonderful quote from Buddhist monk Mahagosananda who said, when you walk through the world with only compassion, you walk with one leg. And when you move through the world with only intellect, you walk with only one leg. But if you move through the world with compassion and intellect, you walk with both. And so I think what we want to do is not dismiss the quantitative, but we want to combine the quantitative, qualitative, masculine, feminine, ship, harbor. So you got me off on psychology. Forgive me if no one wanted to think about that, but I think it's endlessly fascinating. But we love it. <laughs> Who else is it being? Hello, Enrique Danz from IABS School. I would say that we are uh, the virgins of some sort of a neo-humanism. We need to re assess the, the, what, what, what constitutes creating value. So it used to be that creating value was creating value for the society or for mm. our shareholders. And now it seems that we are leaning towards a more individual idea of uh, creating value. And we are right now at the verge of a revolution that will probably leave a lot of people unemployed because we are robotization, we have uh, machine learning, many different things will be done by computers or by robo robots, etc., by technology. And we need to understand this idea of uh, creating value from an individual viewpoint mm. because all these people will probably start having some sort of basic income and uh, uh, on their own to create value if they want to differentiate themselves from the rest of society. So that's mm. some mm. of the thoughts I think it's value created for whom or uh, how do we understand it? What's our view um, from the investment world, Matthew? So we were talking beforehand. Um, so you're coming from a, a deeply financial perspective on that. What, what, what would you say? So Matthew's down the front here. He's being called, called. Absolutely. <laughs> I just get cold called. Yeah, as Peter said, I'm a capitalist, um, but I've dedicated my career to this notion of what's become known as impact investing, or the idea that one can internalize positive externalities when one is evaluating the efficacy of one's capital um, deployment strategy. And I mean, I think this, this you know what the previous speaker said, Enrique, is that right? Yeah. Um, I sense a similar tectonic shift in the way people are looking at the role of capital and the role of capitalism in society. And 10 years ago, I was a full-on pariah when I would bring these subjects mm. up. And more recently, um, when I'm speaking at conferences, I find that people are lining up to talk to me. And I think that, like, anecdotally, that's super interesting. But I think more fundamentally, it reflects a transition in the way think are, people are thinking about harnessing the power of the capital markets mm. to create uh, social and environmental value. Now, the open question is how we measure that. And, I mean, I've done a lot of thinking and a lot of working around that. We have a pretty cool tool that we think works sort of a way to do that, but, you know, to your point, we need the SROI indexes is one somewhat failed effort. Um, the one back there that we just mentioned, that's another one that's sort of coming online, and I think there's so many really, really smart people thinking about this right now, that once it becomes integrated into the way capital moves and flows, I, I can't help but think that we aren't 
right on the edge of a transformation of the capital markets, which is super exciting. I agree. Okay, man Dave. at the back. Dave. Dave. Who has his own index, right, Dave? Well, one of the things that I appreciate about the comment is we assume profit equals shareholder value. The correlation is 50%. Half of shareholder value is intangibles. And I think instead of creating a false dichotomy, we ought to show that making meaning does make money. It creates shareholder value. And I think a lot of times we, we look at shareholder value as evil because it's only about profit, but it's not. Mm. When Volkswagen makes a mistake, their market value drops 50%. Um, when BP makes a mistake, their market value drops. When Unilever does stuff right, social responsibility, their market value goes up far beyond their stock price. I, I think equating profit and shareholder value creates a very false dichotomy. Mm -hmm. And instead of creating one or the other, we ought to be able to track how do we measure and increase the relationship between meaning, purpose, the intangible stuff, and that shareholder value. Mm -hmm. Is that what your index does? Just I don't, I mean, don't be modest. Just tell us what it does. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, <laughs> as we work with investors, we've seen investors go through three phases. One is a financial phase, do we make money? The second is an intangible phase, which is strategy, brand, R&D. And the third phase of investment inquisitiveness is leadership. How do we mitigate the risk by testing leadership? So we've tried to create a leadership capital index that gives investors a way to look at that. And one of the issues is meaning. Do leaders create meaning for their employees? If so, if we can show investors that that creates shareholder value, that's a real positive. And it doesn't have to be an either-or. Um, and that's what we're trying to create. Which goes back to your systemic piece, right? Yes, it's not either-or. It's not either-or. And certainly it's, it's not profit isn't bad, shareholder value isn't bad. And the, in, part of the intangibles in, includes people's subjective... Yeah. Right, 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 right. That's why I was saying profit isn't bad, shareholder value isn't bad. There's a whole list of things that are not bad. And... Um, there are ways that the value we attribute that goes into shareholder value are, some, some, are sometimes um, based on thin air, right? The, the famous examples where we believe there to be more potential there than there really is, especially in, in relatively early stage activities. I can see Navi sitting at the back of the room. Um, hi, Navi. Do you <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if you had a view, because coming from a frugal innovation perspective and looking at emerging markets in particular, whether, whether you've seen different uh, views sure. in terms of what progress is. Um, I'm going to actually uh, not talk about frugal innovation, but actually uh, there's an uh, interesting, um, the latest fortune has an interesting article about how there's an explosion of kind of uh, epitome, actually, of uh, chronic diseases in the Silicon Valley where I live. So it's kind of very ironic that on one hand, Silicon Valley, which represents, you know, the symbol of progress in a way, is also facing you know, a lot of issues with the wellness of the people who essentially eat junk food and have very kind of unhealthy kind of lifestyle. So that's one thing. But um, the, the one point I might share is actually um, about how in Hinduism, uh, progress is defined as actually unleashing one's human potential. So in a way, I kind of build on what Whitney was saying at the end is actually um, whether we should focus more on creating an enabling environment where we can actually 
help people individually unleash their own potential. Uh, and I don't know if there are some, because I'm, we are talking more about, you know, how companies can do that as entities, of course. Uh, but it would be interesting to hear from you what we can do actually to create that enabling environment where everybody actually has a potential to, you know, become an entrepreneur or whatever their life's vocation might be and, and basically enable that in a more bottom-up way instead of thinking, you know, how we can do that in a top-down way. I, I have some thoughts on that. So, Ravi, uh, Navi, Ravi. Navi. Navi, okay. Did, I had it right in the first place, didn't I? Okay, so, um, so you know, it's interesting if you look at um, the last century and a half is that we had, you know, when the industrial age came, we had Henry Ford, and basically they said, you know what, we don't want you to bring your dreams to work. We'll pay you enough money that you can't, you don't need to, because everything will be fine. But then over time, as people had more and more disposable income, they were able to buy things. They realized, okay, I can buy everything that I want. I've got a house, I've got education, and, and life got better and better and better to the point that people said, you know what, now I want to actually bring my dreams to work too. And that's where there's been this real friction and tension because people said, I want to bring my dreams to work, and the industrial area sort of says, no, you can't quite do that. And so I think one of the ways that people can unleash this potential is to allow people to bring their dreams to work. And what does that mean? It means that within an organization, when people have gotten to the top of their learning curve and their learning has peaked, you allow them to jump to a new curve. Now, that means a short-term loss of productivity. But again, if you're looking at things holistically, systemically, then you're willing to let them jump to that new curve. And, um, and they're happier and they're engaged. It's hard to do, but I think almost always I find that if you have that conversation with a manager or a leader, they say to themselves, you know what, I can think of one or two people. It's time for them to jump, and I'm going to let them do that. And then they're completely re-energized. And we all know that very rarely do people leave companies because they're not getting enough money. They almost always leave because they can't bring their dreams to work anymore. Can you take the microphone? For us, the dream was something you do, you know, realize when you get 40, 45, like, you know, when you get to a stable situation. But I think for the Gen Y, they don't think in that sequential way, right? I mean, for them, they want to achieve dream as early as possible. I think that's where I think it's going to be interesting to yeah. see how we handle that. Yay friction. for millennials, right? They're really going to change things, I think, in a positive way. And we have to bring our dreams help. together, Amy. From a teaming point of view? From a teaming point of view, we've got to dream across boundaries. We've got to work across boundaries. I like to say to uh, actually people of all ages, you know, aim high. So that's the dream, mm -hmm. right, right? Aim high. Go after something important. If you don't, the path of least resistance will surely lead you somewhere else, right? So aim high. And if you're going after something important, something meaningful, there is absolutely no way you can accomplish it alone. So team up. So how do, how do you team get up. people to yeah. connect their dreams? Because they're quite personal Right. Things, well, you so. team up. I mean, because if, if I have a dream and I'm in a given field, say architecture or, or um, energy, mm -hmm. pretty soon you realize par uh, my dream has to fit in with your dream or okay. I can't get it. If I want to create the zero energy house, I have to work with someone who knows something about, about energy and bring my architecture or skills Or somebody to bear. who knows nothing about and it. And someone from different. local government who knows something about zoning and so on and so forth. So we, in order to get anything truly meaningful accomplished, one quickly realizes you need to team across okay. not just disciplines but sectors. 
And in doing that, you quickly realize it doesn't always work out very well. So there will be failure along the way. That's okay. Fail well. Right? Have intelligent failures. Have the kinds of failures that nobody could have seen in advance and then learn fast and okay. repeat. So building on the technology point, which you mentioned before, um, a thing which, com which, which puzzles me um, quite often is, is we live in a world where technology is exponential. Technology increases at an incredibly great mm. speed, and the, the, the time to market shortens, and more and more, and the, you know, Moore, mm. Moore's law is more valid than ever. But the, the global economy grows much, much more slowly, mm -hmm. you know, 3% mm -hmm. compared to 300%. So, so if technology progresses at that speed, why doesn't economies or well-being progress at a similar speed, I might naively ask. <laughs> That's a great question. Do you have an answer? No, I'm asking the questions. <laughs> That's always a good position to be in. Does anybody have an answer? I think it's a great question. So why does technology grow so fast? So we hear all about the speed of increase of progress in technology, but we don't it's, see the world growing. Because it grows in silos. It grows mm -hmm. in its, its area. You know, Moore's law is in a silo. Mm -hmm to put it to good use, to put the innovation to good use, or the invention to good use, mm -hmm. is a complex process, and often has unintended consequences that slow and come back. So we're not making the, the most of the connections between right. technologies. Right, which means making connections between people mm -hmm. of very different realms. Okay. Which requires a tremendous amount of humility, actually, right? Right, and leadership. Yeah. Okay, so imagine you're, you're, you're in business, because that's who we ultimately serve. Imagine that you're having one of those vision and mission workshops. Do you know these kind of workshops? Oh, I've heard of them. Yes, okay. So if we're talking about progress in this more holistic way, more human way, where we have different types of values, we have a different destination which we're trying to get to, instead of having missions which say, I want to be the best bank in the world, or I want to maximize the value to my shareholders, what kind of mission should a company be on? Such a, such a big question. Because yeah. That's, yeah. that's what a but CEO needs to know, though, right, isn't it? Right. So. it? It should be a mission that is clear, compelling, meaning meaningful. It touches the meaningful okay. uh, element. Um, and it's a stretch. Right? It's, it's, it, it imagines, it envisions a better world that our products and services can help to create. And very likely, we won't be able to do it alone. So it should be about the world, not about our products. Absolutely. It should be about serving the world, of which customers are a big part of that. So it should be about world. what the, the company does for the world, for the customers, right. how right. it makes the world better. Right. How it makes the world as, better. As opposed which to just what we're doing. Which will feed back and make us better. But most missions are about what we're doing. Well, it's, it's, they're usually about what we're doing in the world, okay. I would argue. But, but moving more yeah. towards what we're doing for the world. Yes. Okay. It's only of interest <laughs> to us. It's not going to get us very far. Okay. Devil's advocate much? Absolutely. <laughs> so how would you in this mission vision workshop, Whitney? Um, I, I think I would go back to the idea, the jobs to be done idea that was um, 
first came out by Anthony Elwick and then was popularized by Clayton Christensen, which is whenever you're trying to build something and build a company um, or even build a life, there's always the functional job and the emotional job that you're trying to get done. If you're in business, you have a functional job where you have to make money. I mean, that's the whole point of having a business and to create value or create money so that people can live and put food on their table. Um, but I think that there's that emotional piece where um, you have to be able to do this goes back to a value system, though. I mean, I'm making a value call. I believe that the company needs to do good in the world, but not everybody does believe that it needs to do good in the world. So it has to be in alignment with, with, with what you think a company should do. And for me, it would be to make profits and do good in the world. Okay. Who's got a good example? So we like, we like practical examples as opposed yeah. to just intellectual theory. Matthew. Okay. Is anyone in this room familiar with B Labs and benefit corporations? Yes. Okay, then I don't need to say anything more. I, mean, no. I think that's in part, no, that's go, sort of go, the go, answer. Go, well, go, there go. was one hand. Oh, there yeah. was just one hand, sorry. So, so, I heard sort of a, a murmur of. So tell us about B Labs. So, B Labs is a nonprofit organization that has attempted to quantify best practices in sustainability, and they do it along four primary axes community, governance, shareholders or stakeholders, and one other one, environment. Um, and it's an intensely complicated process to become B certified. And effectively what it does is it provides legal cover for making decisions at the executive level around um, non-financial metrics. So not um, optimizing for shareholder value and instead optimizing for enterprise value that could extend beyond the economic value of the company itself. And then the next level is the benefit corporation where it doesn't just provide legal cover for the optionality around making those decisions, but actually requires the C-level team to make those decisions outside of um, you know, non-financial value. And I just think that you know, it's, it's sort of at the heart of what you guys are talking about right now. You know, how do we think about mission? How do we embed the mission into the DNA of the business? And then how do we value that business? And I think a perfect example is Etsy. Etsy's a B Corp, they just went public, a unicorn. Um, Warby Parker is a B Corp. Um, a company that I invested in in the seed round, um, Happy Family Foods was a B Corp. They were acquired by Group Den On for multiple hundred X, which was a great outcome. Um, and you know, these companies, they have like embedded in their DNA this notion of non financial return as part of the efficacy metric around their, their operation. And I think it's just, it's, 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 it's exciting. So I have a question for you, Matthew. When you, you use the word economic value, we, I'm, I know we use that as a term of art, would you include that these non-financial pieces, in your mind, is that part of the economic value? Because you, you used it as something separate. And I, I'm just wondering, because I think that's where we struggle a little bit. So, so the way we think about um, investing is that there are non-financial metrics that lead to the increase of shareholder value. And we don't look at shareholder value as the end goal, but it is influenced by and enhanced by focusing on non-financial metrics when the business is operating. And so I think that it's, it's, it's not, again, it's the, the false dichotomy that was mentioned earlier. It's not either or. It's including non-financial decisions in the management of the enterprise, which leads to an increased value of the enterprise itself. And that positive feedback cycle yep. can be like totally phenomenal to watch um, and to ride right. and along with. And Etsy's an amazing company, yeah. yeah. So what if we just go back to health, right? And ties Navi's comment and Matthew's comment. So healthy foods, I don't know what the margins are, but it seems pretty well understood that you can make more money in the food business making bad food than good food. But over time, population health 
is adversely affected. I mean, we see that loud and clear. Population health has been deeply adversely affected by the agribusiness sector and the way it, it values things. So I think that the way you're, you're talking about these issues is very, very important. And I think that's why, that's why we do need a broader system. And you, it made me think of this, the new SASB system, too, the sustainability accounting. Um, okay, great. Yeah. I mean, and hopefully that catches on. So, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely right. Yeah. Okay. Externalities versus internalities. Yeah. I think we, what we are witnessing is a decoupling between value creation and money. Yes. I mean, there's one yes. thing. I mean, no, no one mm. would doubt that Google, that Larry and Sergey created value. They created a lot of value. They improved our lives. We can search much better now. Uh, Twitter. Twitter. Undoubtedly, when they started, they created value. They created a new way of communication, much more bidirectional and all that. But the money issue was there, and they had to fulfill that goal to make the company viable. And they had to struggle until they came up with the advertising idea, etc., etc. But this wasn't embedded in the original idea. The original idea was creating value. And money came as a later, mm. uh, as a something mm -hmm. to worry about to make the company viable. But that was it. It's like a requisite you have to fulfill. But the value is in a different place. So, so value is good, and value is more than money, and value includes the intangibles and the tangibles. And yeah, there may and be a disconnecting happening. Exactly. Why should there be a disconnecting? Because uh, it's you mean there between, is money, between money and value. Yeah, because if we force companies to create money from the very beginning, they might lose the focus on, on, crea the on value. creating value, which is now precisely what is happening with Twitter. They are trying to satisfy the, the famous users, the celebrities, etc., but they are losing the value being created for the common user. Okay. But Matthew is saying that the intangibles drive the tangibles. That's what, that's, what you're saying. Matt. I think there's a lot to learn from, uh, the, from the past. I think uh, Roundtree is a really interesting um, uh, th thought around what he did. And I come from York. I spent years living there. I don't live there now. But in terms of he created villages for, for his employees to, to live in, he created sports recreation for them to do because he saw that that was uh, as important to drive uh, business. The other thing is um, thinking on a personal level, even within our society, it's driven by financials. So um, how much do you earn? Is your, is your salary going up? How big is your house? What car do you drive? So the stories we tell in our culture and society yeah. um, drive that progress equals financial gain. How do we change that? But, but then Nestle acquired Roundtree's. Is that right? Yeah. And, and, and they destroyed all that. Okay. And destroyed some value. Okay. David at the back of the room. <clears throat> uh, yes, I just wanted to uh, express a view that I think the value of any entity as an asset is going to be the expected value of any cash or profit that it makes from now into the future. It's all just a question of timing. Mm. The notion that you can't or shouldn't connect actions you take now with making profits is wrong. Uh, they have to be connected with profits or they won't be expressed as a value. So value is always about the future economic benefits. It's just a question of when. Do you agree or disagree? So we talked about value doesn't necessarily have to be measured before. David's now arguing it should be articulated. In terms of I agree and I don't agree. And I, but I can, all, I can get back to a very metaphysical question is how are we defining profit, right? I mean, it's, it starts to get circular. I think... Well, Sorry. No, no, go, no. Ahead. go, go, go. No, I do agree with what you said, but 
in, in agreeing with you, it doesn't mean I disagree with everything else. Okay. I said. That's right. That is true. <laughs> it's a both I and. Mean, to me, the critical variable there is time frame. Right? What do we mean when we say future? Right? Do we mean next year, next decade? Next hundred years, what is our time frame perspective when we are anticipating creating future cash flows? And that matters greatly. David? Logically, for it to be expressed as a value that someone is prepared to pay you money for right now, it has to be one which is foreseeable and predictable, mm. whether it's 10, 20, 30, or 50 yeah. years from now. Otherwise, they won't give you the money. What's foreseeable 50 years from now? Yeah, here, hand up here. Mm-hmm. Small question, how do we integrate value for whom into all this equation? Value for, for whom? Whom, yeah. So how do you bring all your different gains. stakeholders yeah. together? Gains. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I, I, I heard somebody describe value as a pie, and <laughs> as, as a pie which you, which you cut slices of for each different stakeholder, so for your employees, for your customers, for your shareholders, for society. And the best way to create value is to grow the pie, not to, to cut it in different ways. And so, you know, thinking about, in your business, what is the most sustainable way of allocating the slices of the pie so that there's the right amount reinvested into the business in a way which is going to grow, but people are going to be retained at the same time because they're getting a good salary or bonus from it and that customers are getting a good deal from it and shareholders are getting a good return from it. So I always think about pies mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. making bigger pies. And growing the pies, exactly. Yeah. Okay, any more views? Okay, we're in danger to having a nice intellectual argument. Um, you started off incredibly well. And so just to remind you of the list of things which you said progress was about. Healthy, deeper, easily, boundary. Uh, it's about pushing boundaries, pushing boundaries and uh, making new connections. You talked about uh, progress having real meaning and being thoughtful. Um, things which are not done before. Um, it's about learning and continually learning. Um, it's about feeling uncomfortable in order to make those uh, things, the, the, the pain in order to progress. Um, and ultimately, the outcome could be healthy and happiness uh, measured in both tangible and intangible ways of, uh, of, of thinking about value. My question for you is, what is the most useful and important thing you've heard in the last 45 minutes? <laughs> Uh-oh. Okay, so everybody's going to say something. So the idea is to put the microphone in front of somebody's mouth, okay? This is, this is Tanya from Turkey. He's, he's going to step down. Yeah, on purpose. What's, okay, what's the most interesting or important thing you've heard in the last 45 minutes? Come on, <laughs> come on, you're all here, you, you, I'll come back to that. You're all here to think. That's right. Great, thank you. Um, I was excited by the comment that you guys made about um, being very hopeful about millennials creating change, because I'm a millennial. I agree. <laughs> Go so you better you. get on it. Yeah. Um, okay. I could use a lot of advice, though. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Okay, Tanya's going to go now. I think my reflection from the session, the progress is not an individual act. It's a collective act. And if you push yourself by Mm. all means, you will not reach anywhere else rather than collaborating with someone, and especially with a great team. I think the sustainability 
will come through collective purpose of the companies. So that's a tweetable. Progress mm -hmm. is not an individual, but a collective act. Yeah. Quick, someone tweet that. We've got Mark at the back of the room who's tweeting for Thinker's Safety. Let's go to Ethne down the front here. Thank you all. Um, I was very happy that this discussion came around to value. Or it seemed to start and end with value. And I was stuck there, Whitney, with you, your comment that uh, we tend to value what we measure. So how do we get around to measuring what we value? And that's what I'm mm. taking with me. Good one. One more. Thank you. Um, I'm thinking about how change and opportunity and progress uh, is well seated in the estuaries, in those places where fresh and salt water come together, where the boundaries of uh, sort of to your point about silos and, and collaboration. So that's, that's what I'm thinking of. Where are the estuaries that I where should be paying attention to? Okay, I'm going to take away from it um, three things. Um, firstly, is that uh, we need to redefine progress. Um, so our destination has changed uh, in society and as a business, um, and therefore our journey needs to change as well and the way we measure it. So that's, that's the first thing I'm going to take away. Um, the second thing is that value is still important, um, but maybe we need to be more enlightened about how we think about tangible and, and intangible value for all our different stakeholders and how that contributes to each other. Um, and the third one is that we only progress when we do things together. Um, when we bring technologies together, when we bring people together, when we bring people together with technologies in new ways. And so, you know, in order to make that progress, thinking about the, the different and unusual collaborations which we can make. And I'm just going to leave the final quote to Benjamin Franklin, who said, without continual growth and progress, such words as improvement, achievement, and success are meaningless. Thank you very much for attending. Well done. Thank you for listening. That was a Thinkers 50 podcast. Thinkers 50 podcasts are produced by KDH Creative.